32 counties. 32 questions. Her name is usually Una and my name is Andrea and this is United Ireland. Um, as you can hear, I am on my own this week. <laughs> it's so devastating. I really miss Una. Um, but we have something juicy in store for you. This is our election special part three. And in the run up to Ireland voting on February the 8th, we're bringing you issue focused coverage with emerging political voices and opinions of voters and experts on the things that matter to you. This episode, why is culture always left behind? In this episode, we're going to be talking to Keane from the National Campaign for the Arts, which is a volunteer-led grassroots movement that makes the case for the arts in Ireland. Um, They work to ensure that the arts are on local and national government agendas, especially in the run-up to election, um, and they're recognised as a vital part of contemporary Irish life. But what's interesting and quite upsetting um, for me anyway, and definitely for others, is how the arts and culture, the cornerstone of our society, doesn't really seem to be on anyone's agenda this election, voters or candidates. But first, let's have some campaign news. Now some campaign news. A week in, in election time feels like a year. In this week, since we've last spoken or listened, uh, we had the Virgin Media leaders, in inverted commas, debate. Now, there was so much hoo-ha over this and there was mainly about Mary Lou not being included. And I think the thing that the fallout from this mainly was that it was future leaders and the fact that uh, Mary Lou will never be able to be Taoiseach on this round of election. She's only got 40 candidates running. Um, so there is no possible way she could be a future leader. But I suppose it was just framed a little bit awkwardly. And uh, if you have if you're pitching it as a leader's debate and you have a leader of a party who's only two percent behind the other two parties, it does seem a bit uh, weird. And it, ge- it did give uh, Sinn Féin a good pedestal to Uh, give out about, which is always good for getting people on your side. Um, But anyone who watched the debate, um, and we've had another debate since, obviously, which we'll come back to the Claire Byrne one, but anyone who watched it, it was a bit of a damn squid. Like, like it was felt like they were making up things to disagree with, because let's be honest, they can't, as it's been said so many times, two cheeks of the same arse, etc, etc. We had the highlights, which was a stupid highlight of asking Leo if he did drugs. Who cares? Obviously, if he's uh, pushing policy um, against decriminalising drugs and then but then is t- partaking himself, there's obviously um, a lot uh, of hypocrisy there. But um, I suppose that's when the personal doesn't become the political. And I think when you're trying to win votes rather than do what's right, that becomes apparent. Um, apart from that, snoozerama, there wasn't really much else. The, they didn't talk about policies. They're just taking hits on each other. But And it feels like this is old news, which it is because it's a week old, but it's literally a week old, less than a week, which is bananas to me. And since then, we had the Sunday Business Post Red Sea poll. Um, again, we saw the same kind of stuff going on. Sinn Féin going up, Fianna Gael going down. Fianna Fáil taking the lead. Um, but what was interesting, I think, on that poll was when you broke it down of who uh, the voters were voting for in terms of the 1% and uh, in who uh, 
who earn over a hundred grand, there was only one percent. And when you look at the policies that are being uh, whacked out by the different parties, um, that there is some parties who are just campaigning, I suppose, for that one percent. Um, but that is something that we will watch over the next few days. Um, and then we had the Clare Byrne Live Leaders debate, um, which included all the leaders of the main parties. Um, this was a bit more interesting for the viewer. Um, we've often spoken about how these things can be a bun fight. And I think if you compare the last time Clare Byrne had all the uh, spokespeople in was uh, the um, uh, repeal... Um, debate, which was an absolute shit show. And the difference of this um, was absolutely a different world. It was very well organised. It was very well um, she was she was brilliant. I, th- I personally thought she was very good. What do you think, Una? Miss you. Um, it's so weird just talking to yourself. Um, but yeah, I thought Claire Byrne did a really good job. Um, there was definitely you could see Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael were having their own scrap. The two of them were then having their scrap with uh, Mary Lou. Uh, Richard Boyd Barrett stole the show. He Now people have come out and obviously uh, more uh, right-leaning media saying that he was just saying things that people wanted to hear. Is that not the whole point of an election? And should that not be the whole point of politics? We want to give people what they want. So if that's the case, um, I, I give my number one to Richard Boy Barrett. I think he was very good at taking control of the of the conversation without having to talk over people or fight for his share of voice. Mary Lou obviously was the same. Not obviously, but I think she was very good at taking control of the reins. She got her uh, spoken um, without seeming to be petty of trying to get... Uh, some attention. Uh, the bizarreness of Brendan Helen's uh, contributions were so weird, I personally thought, um, especially when there was questioning of Mary Lou about the Art Corla. And I think that was something that people wanted to hear an answer on and wanted an explanation and then was just cut off. Um, it was very frustrating to watch. You were literally like, oh, please go back. Can we finish that conversation um, and get some clarity on that issue? So that was a bit disappointing. And then came in with just a random thing that didn't really like here's a it was a very bizarre interjection um, but then I think the performance for Micheál Martin he seemed a bit cranky and like I think Micheál Martin's a lovely person um, I, his policies are questionable sometimes but especially with the party but um, I just don't think he was at the table um, and Leo yeah he kind of came back from last week last week he was a kind of wet sock um, I think the drug question through him but he uh, seemed to be more in control this weekend yeah so it was a really good uh, debate if you ask me I think we got a good bit on policy um, I felt a bit sorry for the Social Democrats um, because when she when Roisin spoke she made a lot of good points and a lot of sense um, but I suppose it goes back to do you try and interject to get your voice heard um, and then do you look like you're trying to hog the conversation or um, and I, that goes down to debating technique and I think that she fell down on that which was a pity because they do have great policies um, that should be heard more and uh, it would be great to get their policies out to a wider audience because I do think the Social Democrats have a lot going for them. So that uh, was, yeah, that's my summation of the debate. I am very excited for tomorrow night's one again, another one. Um, 
I don't know what else can be said at this stage. If we look at the campaign, how it's going this week, everyone's just taking pock shots at each other. Like the policies are out, the manifestos are out. It's just a popularity contest, really. And everyone just trying to take someone else down. Um, and which is interesting when some of your uh, candidates on your own party are almost trying to take you down. We had the big news this week was obviously Catherine Noon and her comments on Leo Varadkar and him maybe having being autistic. Um, there's been so much uh, pushback on this, and rightly so. But you have to wonder if you've made so you've made an such a fuck up with words and language and what you're calling someone to then revert to using the N-word as a way out of that. How does your, like how, it just blows your mind. And like, um, I think it's very interesting to see how people have reacted. And obviously, um, as I am, the autism people have said that they do not accept her apology. Uh, Leo came out straight away and was like, yeah, I accept her apology. It's good enough for me. Lynn Ruan was on Joe.ie making a very valid point that it's not just about Fine Gael and uh, Catherine Noon and Leo Varadkar's conversation. There's a bigger picture of people who need to be apologised to. It's not just whether Leo Varadkar accepts it. Um, autism is not a sickness. Um, it's a different way of a brain working and uh, that is not lacking in empathy. Um, and sometimes uh, people with autism have way too much empathy that it's overbearing for them. So I think uh, people with autism, this has really put uh, it on the election campaign um, and how people, parents who have autistic children um, really struggle to get their children into schools, how it's so difficult and how they really have to fight for that and for such a flippant comment to be made about um, somebody's personality um, by a candidate is really bizarre, especially when it's your your esteemed leader, I suppose. Uh, something interesting I came across in the Irish Times, there was a story um, that the work of hashtag more women has really worked. Uh, one in three contenders in this general election are women, which is great news. Um, and there was... Uh, a party who came out and said that they were going to work for 50%. Uh, was that a party? We'll come back to that. There's my memory being shit. Um, but over a fifth of those candidates are running independently. So is that uh, women being astute and not wanting to play party politics and just go their own way? You would have to wonder. Um, and then yesterday, Sinn Féin and Labour finally, not finally, but they launched their manifestos quite late into the campaign. Um, and there was a lot of similarities, obviously, um, but Sinn Féin really went gung-ho on public spending. And there's been a lot of kickback today on, um, I suppose, how it's very dangerous for all this public spending to happen. And I suppose when you look at the parties who are making those claims and I want to put a disclaimer, I'm not a shinner, but to hear the parties that are making these um, claims who have gotten the country into the debt it's got us into, who are very, um, very skirting on the edge of danger themselves with their spending and how they've gotten us to here. Um, And I suppose it goes back to, it reminds me of something that Damo Dempsey and uh, Mazer did and it was like I would rather trust a dealer on a corner than a 
uh, man in a suit and that's not the correct one so don't quote me on that verbatim but I suppose it's like the crimes that were inflicted on us as a society because they were done by business people does that make them any more dangerous or any less dangerous than spending on public uh, public services I think that's the main question and I think that is uh, why Labour, Sinn Féin, people for, for profit are putting forward the uh, the people of this election rather than the economics. Now, the key issues on this election have definitely been health and housing and very understandably they're essential and both are in absolute bits. Uh, they're big problems that we need to collectively get our heads around policy-wise and solve. And yes, I did use the word solve. So often it gets dismissed as an impossibility. But the fact is, it's only impossible if we let it be impossible. I'm in very utopian mood today. Um, but it, it's not actually a utopia, so it is a possibility to solve. I don't want to keep talking about Finland, but there you go. But these issues, housing and health, etc., should be basic human rights provided by a society that cares. We shouldn't have to be fighting for these issues. They should be inherent. Um, In elections, we should really be voting for the type of society we want to live in. Um, And this kind of, this quote jumped out at me this morning. It was like it came to me when I was working together on this podcast. The tone of colour in a room or a morning sky a particular perfume that you had once loved and that brings subtle memories with it. A line from a forgotten poem that you had come across again. A cadence from a piece of music that you had ceased to play. I tell you, Dorian, that is that it is on things like these that our lives depend. And that was a quote from Oscar Wilde. Um, so today we are going to be talking about culture. Things that our lives depend on. Where is culture in all of our election conversations? Uh, We've had debates, we've had one-on-ones. Culture hasn't focused in any of these and not very, like, not very strongly in manifestos. I suppose culture is always seen as a nice to-do and it's always the first for the chop. Even though we rely on it for export, tourism, mental health, employment, culture really is a reason to be alive. See, told you, utopian vibes for me today. It shapes the type of world we live in. And without it, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, I went there. Today, we have Keen O'Brien from the National Campaign for the Arts. And he is also Artistic Director of Project Arts. Welcome in to see us, Keen. Thanks, Andrea. Could we start off straight in, no kissing, with the reason for the Campaign for the Arts being established? Sure. So the National Campaign for the Arts was set up in, it was actually in the, the 2007 um, it was the or 2008 maybe even it was the beginning of the recession and it happened at a con- an arts conference in Wexford um, as a result of the publication of the board snip newer report which was you know how are we going to survive this disa- calamitous disaster that's coming down the tracks and as part of that the report had proposed enormous cuts to culture. So the campaign for the arts came out of that, really. It came out of a sense of a group of people who are highly dependent, in a sense, on the state for investment in our businesses, in our artistic practices. And 
um, really it was about finding a way for um, for the sector to communicate that to government, to communicate that to the wider society and for us also to create some kind of solidarity between each other to to be able to kind of, I suppose, fight that fight. Um, yeah, and what are the core aims of the campaign? Well, I suppose the campaign has evolved over time depending on, I suppose, the, what's happening yeah. in the, you know, in the world. So currently, what our, our, so our main aim is to get all of the um, whoever is in government to commit to doubling investment in culture and the arts by 2025. So over the life of the next government. Mm. And I saw the Instagram that was going live all red and gorge, but there was loads of like really interesting uh, key points within that. What were the what were the main ones? So of that? the main ones of that, that though of our um, Faber's Insta posts, <laughs> courtesy of uh, designed by an artist, Levo Dunahue, who's actually a performer and a dancer and graphic designer. Uh, Twenty three. Yeah. Uh, 23,000 people are employed in the arts and culture in Ireland. That's from the census 2016. 72% of artists working in Ireland earn less than the national minimum wage. And that's from our survey of 2020. What percentage was that again? 72. 72. Well, that's three quarters. And 72% of artists and arts workers in Ireland do not have a pension and 48% don't have health insurance. That's also from our survey we we did um, late last year and early this year. Um, Government investment in the arts and culture in Ireland is lower than any other country in Europe, representing just 0.11% of Mm. GDP compared to a European average of 0.6%. So we are way behind. And that's a Council of Europe figure. More people attend paid arts events in Ireland every year than attend GAA championship matches. And how much do we invest a lot in sports? We invest a huge (laughs) amount in sport and that seems to be going super well for people. Um, But even if you look at what we invest in greyhound racing, like alone... Yeah, it's, you know, it's the amount of money we're talking about here is tiny. Yeah, yeah. The figures we're talking about here, you know, it's barely, you know, okay, this is going to sound huge when I say yeah. it. <laughs> it's like 300 million. But compared to the billions that yeah, we yeah. spend on, you know, on housing, on health, which you know, it's should. a drop in the water, which we absolutely yeah. should be spending, you know, get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. But it's a drop in the water. And the kinds of figures we're talking about are really small. Um, the arts make money for Ireland. For every one euro invested into arts and culture, two euro is returned in direct taxation to government. So when you're talking about commercial viability, which is what a lot of people is their language, it's it's never like, well, it brings mental health relief, it is good for communities. It's like, but where's the money? Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily buy into the economic argument as a brilliant, <laughs> you know, as a brilliant tool by which we measure the success of the arts, yeah. unless you're working in the commercial arts sector. Yeah. But I also do think that, you know, especially when you have a government that is focused on you have to have business and show. economy. We, you know, yeah. it's good to have these figures. And that's from Indicon. Those figures come from Indicon. When you say you're not, you, you're, you don't know how you feel about uh, commercial viability being connected to the arts. What do you mean by that? Well, Why? You're talking about the, you know, the importance of arts in relation to kind of mental health, how it improves people's lives, how it's a, you know, it's an essential service, just like health and housing. And so it needs investment. Mm. People need to invest in that. And I think the return you get from that is soci- is societal benefit. The return you get from that is, you know, the fact that, you know, your, your society can be transformed by it. The way the government use arts and culture as a as a almost as a propaganda tool. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, like is you a, only have to look at our national symbol. Exactly. Yeah. And I think those that that's exactly the kind of um 
you know, the the important role that art plays in Irish society as a vehicle by which we can communicate our identity as a nation. You know, I believe that that's a wonderful that thing. To use that then for tourism, to use yeah. that then for, uh, for making money. Yeah. If, Do you want to know how much you, cultural tourism is worth to the Irish economy? 5.1 billion euro. That's domestic and overseas tourism. And those figures come from Fulch, Ireland. But here's my favourite one, right? <laughs> Four of the top six most happiness-inducing activities are arts-related. The other two are sex and Yay! exercise. And that's from the Mappiness Project at the London School of Economics. And I suppose um, I'm obsessed with this man. Uh, well, I'm obviously not that obsessed because I don't know his name. <laughs> <But> <laughs> wow. He uh, changed the in Burma the measure of success of the country from the GDP to the happiness uh, indicators. And I suppose if we're looking at what's, what it means to live in a society and what the point of life is, obviously we need uh, the... Um, the what's that the thing of ner- of needs your the hierarchy of hierarchy needs. of needs yeah. we need that so we need to feel safe we need to be warm we need somewhere to live we need to be healthy but if we look at what it means to live we need the, a culture and art to be part of that well, well how do we understand our role what we're doing what, here what how do we do- find you know find out you know how do we learn things you know for example maybe people could go and see what I don't know about autism at the Abbey Theatre next week and they might learn Very about autism current. for example so why do you think then that arts and culture are never seen as heavy hitters when it comes to election time like it's like if we were we'll come to the manifestos and social democrats came out very strongly but like it didn't really get a whisper. No, and it tends not to. You know, I think the the, the wider issues around, as as you mentioned, health, housing, education, become the key focus and, and the economy. And I think, you know, the arts are seen, you know, by some of the parties as a kind of colourful addition to things a where it can addition. be, yeah, where it can be used, you know, as a, as a tool for propaganda, as it can be used as a way to kind of, you know, communicate the message. And, you know, that's been very apparent, I think, in, you know, in the government that's, the, the previous government that we're uh, may or may not re-elect um, uh, in a week's time, but I, I suppose I think that partly that comes from our own challenge as a sector that is, in, in a sense, dependent on investment, dependent on funding. You know, it, from from the government. So there's a kind of don't bite the hand that feeds you, and you know. So the NCFA, the National Campaign for the Arts, coming about was a real I suppose was a real challenge for the sector ourselves to be able to kind of go do you know what actually we need to stand up and fight for the good things that we contribute to this society yeah. and you know we're going to have our, our NCFA arts hustings on Friday morning at Project Arts Centre and we have representatives of all the major parties Great. Um, uh, attending along with you know Full House we've got RTE News we've got media so you know there is there there is an you know, there is an interest in arts and culture and, you know, the parties are taking it, it seriously. But it feels like it's not going to win votes. It's not going to win votes, but you know. I think it would. Mm, I think it will win votes in, with certain people. Mm-hmm. I think I think it also depends on the party that the, that the um, candidate is associated with. You know, I think there are certain parties who've really embraced the power of the arts, mm. that the role the arts can play in social change, in economic change. And I think that there are other parties who see it, as I said earlier on, as this kind of like fluffy fun thing that you can, you know, you can do to kind of, you know, help get yourself a seat on the UN Security (laughs) Council or you can, you know, use it as a way to kind of, um, you know, promote the 
the activities of the country. I think when you look at the impact of programmes like Creative Schools, which is run through the Arts Council, mm. where there is creative activity and artists happening in schools all across the country, it will be so it'll be so interesting to see what the benefits of that are in the future. How those how those students, how those children become engaged with culture, how mm-hmm. they see culture, does it become an intrinsic part of their life? And, you know, when you go to other countries and you attend, you know, I travel a lot for my job and you see, you're attending performance events or galleries. In other countries, the audiences always seem, and maybe this is just, this is anecdotal. Yeah, my yeah. own, like, <laughs> sitting there going, oh my God, why is it not like this at yeah. home? But the audiences always seem younger. They always seem, you know, they seem like they're... Um, not that all it's audiences have to be younger, going to everything. but it's not, uh, you know, the traditional audience for arts events in Ireland is seen as a sort of middle aged, middle class, you know, white yeah. group. And actually, I think that there's I think it, it would be interesting to see how that broadens and how, you know, if arts and culture become an intrinsic part of government policy. Worth talking about that, at manifesto time. Yeah, that those kinds of those changes in society, whether that's in terms of diversity, of representation of artists or of politicians, you know, that or, but I you th- know, in general yeah, yeah. across society, those are the things that I think are the kind of powerful tools that art and culture can bring to bring to society. But I suppose we have a problem in Ireland with access to the arts and that it is it is very middle class because a lot of the time it can be expensive um, it can be hard to access um, it does we don't have the support for the arts in maybe more working class areas obviously there's bigger issues that are there to be focused on so it kind of gets pushed into the the D4s into the more into the what those are not just Dublin, but you know that way. Well, I so like, it depends if how there's you a define, job to be done, yeah. and like I feel like yeah. if there was more talk of culture and arts and creating access, and people before profit did a lot in their manifesto about access, and it was very access driven their, their culture and arts piece. So I suppose if that was if it was relevant to more people, because it does feel a little bit, I suppose the art gang. It can feel like that, and I suppose it depends. <laughs> it depends where you're where you're engaging with it, because I think you know if you're going to the big play, the big arts venues, like yeah. if you're going to the Abbey or the Gate Theatre, if you're going to the National Gallery, if you're going to IMA, yes, probably you're looking at a similar audience profile. Again, anecdotal. I mm. don't actually know the makeup of of their yeah. audiences, but I think there are other places and other types of venues what is where art? you might My find question. out, you know, we, where I suppose yeah. different types of experiences will be, can be um, can be had, and also you know, and I, I, suppose I feel audiences. like there's a lot of makers and doers who are like really focusing on this, and like there is um, a change shift in pricing to have yeah. accessible pricing on each production. That there is uh, there is a movement from the makers, so it would be good to see that reflected in, I suppose, policy and to have an importance placed on it. I absolutely agree with that. Good. Um, so I suppose in terms of of manifestos and government then so the benefits of culture are often heralded by governments um, and we've seen especially in the outgoing maybe ingo what are they called incumbent <laughs> incumbent government that they were very vocal um, and really focusing in on the arts and uh, do you think what they were like was it all spin coming from within or was there support coming through on our last government? 
I mean, in some ways there was because you you see that funding, you know, has increased, but only by 24%. You know, they're proposing that they would double funding to arts and culture um, by 2025. Do you think there needs to be a different way to access funding? It feels like it's very hard to do. I think... Or is it? Is, it's like, not I, that I, difficult. I, I mean, I, it's, 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 I suppose in a sense it's not difficult in, in that there are clear processes that yeah, the Arts yeah. Council, for example, which is a major funder, has. But there is a lot of admin around it. But yeah. it's public money, so yeah, it needs to be properly to be. accounted yeah. for. Um, but I suppose to go, to go back to, to, to your point around the, the incumbent government, I think there is, there was some progress made. It was very difficult to get any kind of roadmap. Mm-hmm. Um, any kind of detailed plan as to how that would be um, rolled out, how that doubling, yeah. saying you're going to do it and then actively planning to do it are two different things. You know, and in all of the manifestos that have been published in the last week from all of the mm. major parties, you know, some are stronger than others. Um, yeah, I went, I've gone through them all. Fine Gael, um, up until this morning where the ones who've given the most thought and vision for culture I felt in the this election, people before profit, focused on accessibility to culture for everyone, which is great. Not really anything from the Greens and Labour. It was more, you can kind of see their cultural focus coming from maybe some great candidates like Claire Byrne and Rebecca Moynihan, rather than having a party focus. And then Social Democrats have Sarah Durkin from Science Gallery flying the cultural flag, but they've also launched an amazing cultural policy today. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I'd agree with you on that analysis. I think, you know, the, the, the two kind of, I suppose, major parties in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have, pub- have published kind of quite ambitious, you know, detailed policies mm. around culture and the arts, as has, has have the Social Democrats. The others are less detailed and, you know, and maybe more ideologically led. Yeah, then, and can, I suppose connected to kind of overall party vision as opposed to really kind of thinking about the role that arts and culture can play in, in society. Mm. The inst- I suppose this idea of instrumentalisation versus actually just, you know, letting the artists get on with it because they know how to make the work themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've, we've seen direct correlations between culture and lowering of antisocial behaviour when it goes into communities. Do you, like... That in itself kind of is a, just a point I wanted to make. But like, it like, why is this not kind of cutting through when you have conversations then about drugs and poverty and like the fact that there's nothing to do? Culture and art provides something to do, focus, meaning of life, like purpose, mm. I suppose. Well, nine years of austerity has has led to a situation where, you know, investment in community projects, investment in the local areas has, you know, has been has been, been minimal, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, a lot of those really ambitious, extraordinary cultural projects that happen in different communities around the country, there are... On a wing and a prayer. On a wing and a prayer, absolutely. And yeah. there's so few of them now, you know. Th- you just wish that you could have more of a connection being made by the bigger parties um, and by everyone that this impacts on the stuff you're trying to fight with guards, with more investment in on, on the beat, etc. That with culture, yeah. this could be the answer. Well, in a way, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of also enshrining culture uh, in the policy of the government, yeah. but also in local authorities where, you know, culture is, you know, they all have to have a culture plan, but they don't have to have funding. You know, they're not, you know, they're not, it's not. Um, well, that's, a, that's a bigger conversation. It's a bigger conversation, but, uh, but it impacts all of that power. because it, you know, that kind of trickle down effect yeah. of, you know, the decision being made at 
at government level impacting what happens at a local level which then impacts uh, at a micro level on the ground where people are actually trying to run these projects and make things happen Finally do you think arts and culture are ever going to get the props they deserve in manifestos and um, election policies? I mean, I could be all optimistic (laughs) and fab (laughs) like Oscar Wilde and your quote (laughs) earlier on. Um, I think that arts and culture plays a hugely important role in Irish society. I do think that the idea that there are an extraordinary bunch of people, artists, who are telling stories and who are finding ways to communicate the soul of our nation and what's happening um, in the world around us and to help us make sense of that. I think we, the NCFA and all of our sector, have a job to do to keep culture going, to keep culture in that conversation. Mm. I don't think the appetite is there when there are demands from all of the other areas of government. So that strength of our lobby is important, but also that strength will only come with investment. Investment. Yeah, and I suppose there's a bias there, even with me, like even when I was doing this, I was like, oh, this is a bit of a fluffy subject for the role of the election and in that in itself, and I'm very much... um, an advocate and bought into it. And yeah. that fact that it feels fluffy when the facts and figures are there that it's not fluffy. There is no fluff. There is no fluff. No. And the meaning of life is not a fluffy subject. It sure ain't. <laughs> Thank you, Keen. You're welcome. Now we have a new segment in our election specials, The Voter's Voice. This week's Voter's Voice is a pensioner from Galway. She's loved and lived in the big smoke for many years. And she also happens to be Una's mum. My name is Patricia Mullally. I'm 71 years old. I'm originally from Galway, living in Dean's Grange for over 40 years. I'll be voting in the Dunleary constituency. How do you think people categorise your type of voter? I would say people think older people have it much better than younger people, which to a large extent is true because we were able to buy houses in our 20s, our mortgages paid. Um, So once you don't have a mortgage, you don't have many other bills, um, you would be regarded as comfortably off. We have free travel. We have um, free television licence once you're over 70. Um, We get a par payment for electricity. Um, So people would see that we have it. You know, we live a fairly comfortable life. To a large extent, that's true. But there are older people who are eking out an existence. Not every older person owns their own house. And that is very difficult. And what kind of issues are you thinking about when you're voting? Um, One in particular that has become kind of a very much an election issue that maybe people didn't see coming, but maybe you did, is around the the conversation about pensions. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, you know, I've obviously gone beyond that, but I do realise that if somebody has an expectation, I listen to people who have, are retiring at 65, some people who have worked 40, 50 years, and they, um, and rightly so, expected to get their pension at 66. And they can... Um, obviously get this is a way out of it to a certain extent between 66 or 65 and 66 they can get a not a transition pension which was abolished a few years ago but they can get go on job seekers allowance um that 
you know, after 66, once you've been on that for nine months, that is means tested then. And for people who have a smaller pension or have some savings, they're going to be knocked out of that, which means they have to, you know, use up some of their savings to exist literally for a year until the pension clicks in at 67. Um, now, there are other people who, you know, are fairly well off and it mightn't affect them. But there's a large cohort of people who work for private companies who have very small occupational pensions and between 66 and 67 um, when the changes come in next year, they will be locked out and they'll have to use up savings or try and exist on the pension they have. And do you think that's fair? I don't, you know. And, and what they're looking at is they're looking at the politicians' huge pensions. And of course, the politicians say, well, there's only 100 and something of us and there's 230,000 pensioners. There should have been a bigger lead in to it, you know, um, they're saying the pensions aren't sustainable, but there's a lot of waste and there's a lot of, you know, and to a certain extent, I think, but they won't do this, of course. I would be willing absolutely to pay, you know, 50 euro a year for a travel pass because everyone get, getting is getting a travel pass regardless of their means. And also, I don't think everybody over 70 should have a free television license. That's not means tested either. Hmm. What issues are you voting on then when you're considering this election? Like what election issues are really important to you, do you think? Yeah, I think the most important really, apart from health is important, but housing and homelessness. It's, it's dreadful to see young people into their 30s and they can't afford to buy a house. And... The pensions, going back to the pensions here, are really predicated on house ownership. Because if we were in a situation now where we were trying to pay a rent of 1500 a month, we just couldn't do it. So the pension situation was predicated really on people owning their own homes when they come to retirement. And people now coming to retirement, with the way things are going, people in their 40s buying houses, when they're retired, they'll be paying a mortgage. And that's very, very, I don't know what's going to happen in time to come. Yeah, I didn't really think about that before. But at the same time, like, why is housing important to you personally? Because we're told all the time that people vote on issues that are very much impact their well, personal lives. I would think of, you know, while you might think of your own situation, you have to think of younger people and children, children living in hotels, you know, children homeless, it's absolutely shocking. And when you hear of, pe you know, people with children living in hotels, they can't cook, they can't. I mean, that's an absolute disgrace in a country that's, you know, we're told is, you know, incredibly wealthy. There's a huge number now of millionaires, billionaires. So the money is going, obviously, it's not going, it's not filtering down. Mm. And the poor are getting poorer you know, and the, and the wealthier are getting wealthier. So do you think um, maybe Fine Gael misjudged things? Because I guess their base is viewed as more wealthy. But you're saying as somebody who has their mortgage paid off, that even though housing doesn't impact you personally, it's still the issue you're voting on. Oh, it would be the issue I'm voting on. Yeah, no, I, I don't think they're interested. Their base is, is, I think, it seems, is the wealthy. And I mean, I, I also would be concerned about the hoarding of land and the land tax that they have on it 
it doesn't seem to me that whoever would double the land tax, the land tax needs to be double to force developers to build. And and the state should be building houses. The state was building houses back in 1960 when there was no money. You know, the state was building them. And now they just don't, they just don't seem to be willing. They don't want to compete with the private developers. And when um, Leo Rocker was on The Last Word the other day, he was talking about how... Um, I think he was talking about how certain parties, obviously means kind of more left-wing parties... They have an ideological approach to housing, you know, that they want just like councils to build housing. And that's an ideological approach. But it kind of gets Fine Gael off the hook about their ideology. In a well, bit. no, he is. They have an ideological uh, policy. They don't want to compete with private developers. They don't want to build houses. You know, and if you look at all the vacant houses and the councils, I mean, I think they're quite tardy to and building or you know developing land that they have I mean there's a huge amount of state land and why and there's money from the European Investment Bank I think so why doesn't the state build you know on on state land and there's no cost then there's a cost to a developer you know and they want to make a huge profit but if the state built on state land you know the houses will be much cheaper how do you feel um, like you're talking about like build their building kind of council houses in the 60s and stuff like when you're considering your vote, like how do you feel about the state of the country as it were? Obviously, you're a pensioner and you've been through it all. Like what's your perspective on the way the country is right now? Um, I think even though things were, you know, it was very difficult years, like, you know, when you start off and you get married, and you have very little money. But now I just think, and I think crime as well and drugs, I think the whole, and there's a lot of family breakdown. While you didn't hear of that years ago and children are growing up, I mean, they need a stable environment. And I mean, I was listening to a principal from a school in the inner city and he was saying about housing that when it doesn't concern people, but it does concern me. And he was talking about children having to move schools. They have no stability going from, one place to another in living in hotels and not liking to tell their um you know their friends that they're living in a hotel and you know they come in in the morning they're they can't get their breakfast in the hotel i mean schools are doing a lot dash schools to try and give children stability but if they haven't got it in a home environment and taking two and three buses across the city and, and i think it's the same all over the country mm. so um do you mind me asking who you're going to be voting for then? Well, in the constituency, I would vote for um, Oshin Smith, the, the Green Party candidate, because I think climate change is important. And I would vote for Richard Boyd Barrett. I wouldn't vote for any of the main parties. And I feel the Labour Party, which is such a pity, um, let people down the last time. They were decimated. And, I, and people are saying now, and I wouldn't, trust them again because they'd be swallowed up you know as well hmm. is now a good time to tell you that I don't have a pension <laughs> well you know that's very because you cannot rely on the state pension and I think you should put some money into a pension every month now the only thing is people did that before and then the pensions were you know decimated and people's pensions were wiped out in the last crash hmm. and that can happen hmm. So under the mattress it is. Well, or in the post office. 
Thank you very much, Patricia Mullally, mum. <laughs> You're welcome. This week's Get in the Sea. Uh, so, I kind of have two. My first one was going to be election, election literature and posters. And we were just talking about it, myself and Andrew in the studio, about how this was meant to be a green campaign and the amount of posters uh, that are everywhere and literature going in your post box. But then if you think about... Then I had this idea um, yesterday and I just thought it was the best idea. And I was... It, was it was on my Twitter, but it, I'll read it out. It was parties should have to input their manifesto into the new government checklist app, which has yet to be developed, with a deadline and a checkbox, and tick off their promises as they go. And then they have to explain their unticked boxes each year with a financial penalty for what they haven't done. Um, and then uh, Shauna B Money replied, and she's like, uh, "Yeah, we could then use the system info to create an independent quiz that people could use to suggest who they are more closely agree with, and it removes the need for posters and gives equal awareness to all candidates running." And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds good." But then we were just talking about people who may not be interested in politics. They are not listening to the radio because they're on their Spotify. They are not watching the news because they watch Netflix so they don't even see ads. They are not reading the Irish Times uh, or opinion pieces. So how would they know there was an election on? So the posters do serve a purpose. So I think we definitely need to keep the posters so they're not getting in the sea. Alas, but it's close. What is getting in the sea is <laughs> the journal did <laughs> a Q&A with all uh, parties and the first one that they did was their policies on cycling in Ireland um, and Renewal's response was the party chairman Seamus Irene told the journal.ie that cycling in Ireland is not top of our priorities in light of recent violence in Laird and Cork fair enough a young man was chopped up and put into plastic bags in Drogheda, Irene said, another stabbed to death in Cork. You'll have to forgive us, but worrying about how the average metrosexual cycles to work at Google is not top of our list of priorities. Oh my God, get in the sea. The fact that there is, like, you don't just have one policy. It's all about diversification and there are many things that we can be worried about and cycling is definitely one of them. Renew it in general, but specifically their response on cycling get in the sea also aren't aren't metrosexuals like 15 years ago isn't that <laughs> what like what is a metrosexual are you a metrosexual i'm not sure i don't think so i I'm not am really, i one? um i mean i guess i you can't could ride be. a bike so oh, <laughs> so i'm you what? i can't ride a bike you can't ride a bike no why why not? I've no balance. I'm a Libra and I still... I'm a Libra. <laughs> You're supposed to have balance. I have balance. loads of balance, but I don't have any. I can't walk on a treadmill without holding on either. Have you, have Here's you all the facts you'll learn about me today. <laughs> have you got your inner ears checked? Could be an yeah, issue there. Okay. I don't have balance when I go out either. Let's just say. Okay. <laughs> balance is not my forte, but yeah. I tried loads of times and even when I in my old jobs, my co-workers tried to help me do it. I just... I don't, I don't know. I just don't trust balance. You, you might, you <laughs> I don't might trust have, balance. Might wow. have a slight issue with gravity. <laughs> yeah, gravity is my issue. Um, apart from my lack of balance, I do have some fave bits. Uh, first up is her story. Now, this is a lovely um, 
thing that is being done by RTE, which is telling the stories of Ireland's great female trailblazers. Um, And it is coming this February on St. Bridget's Day, which is the 1st of February, and International Women's Day on the 8th of March. RTE are going to be celebrating the achievements of Irish women who broke new ground and whose work changed the lives of others. And in many cases the course of history. Um, It's going to centre around a six-part documentary series on TV, but there's loads of other elements to it. There's a podcast, there's online pieces. I think there might be uh, an exhibition. There is absolutely loads going on around it and I can't wait to watch the uh, six-piece documentary, but um, I would highly recommend everyone have a look at uh, the RTE website where you can find out more information on it. And yeah, I think it's a lovely project. Uh, secondly in my fave bits I've loads of fave bits this week Lizzo in general we all know I'm obsessed uh, but also Lizzo on the cover of Rolling Stone the fact that Lizzo is just she's just owning the world and doing it on her terms and I think it is so inspirational for so many people who don't fit the mould of what traditionally has been held up as the only thing to look like, thing to act like, thing to think like. It's just, uh, I think she is breaking down a load of barriers and the fact that you have her on the cover of something like Rolling Stone being an absolute goddess, uh, rocking her rockin her best life, I think snaps for Lizzo so much in so many ways. on a completely different uh, spectrum I suppose I am absolutely obsessed and I'm so shocked at myself because it's not the type of thing I would normally be obsessed with Dancing with the Stars on RTE (laughs) Andrew's shaking his head at me we're like no no I just feel like and I talk about this all the time. I want my entertainment to fill me with light and love. I don't want it to be about murders and real life crime and give me the absolute fear so that I have anxiety going to bed. Um, and I think I really do. I know you can't get anxiety f- from just watching programs, but I do think it is impacting on our mental health and how we're all doing. And if we have more just nice pieces of entertainment maybe the world would be a better place I'm like I'm in such a utopia mood today but I just think it's you've got Julian being absolutely gas every week it's tangalicious and tangatastic like I can't get enough of it um, and I think if we if we could all have a little focus on doing a bit of yoga and watching Dancing with the Stars we'd all be namaste and positive rays of light and I think we could do it a bit of that Um <laughs> Stop laughing at me. It's serious. Positivity and yeah, thank you. And finally, um, my fave bit is a documentary that was on Channel 4 on Monday night called Bring Back the Bush. Where did our pubic hair go? Um, And I think there's such an interesting conversation around this. And it was I was looking at the reactions on Twitter from some people who are like, it's just hair. Can we stop talking about it to other people who are like, really delving into the social impact of uh, porn and uh, our uh, our perceived beauty of bare labia. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> well, so I suppose just that it's become such a thing that there's so much opinion and preference around. Um, it's really interesting to delve into um, why that is. And I suppose... It also goes back to when you have people who are like, I just prefer um, it bare, 
is that your own opinion or is that the impact of society forcing beliefs on you through media and how much of that is osmosis? And I, this is something I think about a lot of the time, especially like when you have like I'm going, I can't believe I'm going here and I come back, the Kardashians, like when they are like getting all sexy and naked for Instagram, saying that they're empowering themselves and that they're using their sexuality. Is that the case or are they using the view um, through the patriarchal society of what men's gazes like? Um, And I love kind of delving into and it's a big philosophical and psychological thing that there's been a lot of studies on of where our actual uh, thoughts and beliefs come from and where we just are um, forced they're forced on us and we don't even know it which is a bit scary but sure look that's the world we live in and this is why we need art and culture to delve into these things this podcast is produced by Andrew Mank and a Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett sorry excuse me Crystal Clear gave us this tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design and guess what I forgot to talk about Patreon again (laughs) surprise Um, thank you so much to all our new Patreon supporters it's really helping us Um, we have been doing some bonus episodes we have been uh, really grateful for your support but if you haven't supported us don't be scabby get on it and uh, sign up for some soundness Um, speaking of soundness oh actually People have been suggesting topics for us to cover, um, which has been really great. So I just wanted to do a shout out. Uh, Somebody asked us to do a piece on proportional representation and how our voting system works. So we're definitely going to do that. Somebody asked us to do some what's hot and what's not of the parties um, for people who may not have the historical context behind it. So we'll definitely look at that um, as we draw nearer um, to our election date. So do uh, stay tuned. And if there is anything that you'd like us to cover or um, have any comments, do get in contact through any of our social media or our email, of course, on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. Now my favourite part of the week, this is our tuna chicken roll. I don't really have much to say about it. It's just a tuna chicken roll and I love listening to it and it is an upbeat thing and fits in with my positive ray of light ideology that I am rolling with today. It is Daphne and it is sizzling. I've been Andrea Horan, Una hasn't been here. This has been United Ireland and that was Election Special Part 3. Culture. Culture.